If you're able, please stand with me and open your Bibles to Acts in chapter 1. Our reading as well as the content of our sermon this morning will be the first 11 verses. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, whom was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's go before the Lord in prayer before we hear. Lord of glory and God of grace, we ask that your Holy Spirit would make his presence known among us this morning, within us this next hour, as we look into your word, I ask that you'll grant me the ability communicate, that it will be your word that is heard, not mine. It's through me as a vessel for your glory to the hearts and lives of your people and to bring forth life, spiritual life, um, among any who are spiritually dead. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we will uh, begin this morning a study in the book of Acts for at least a year or two. <laughs> we never know. We studied the life of Joseph, and then we worked our way into the book of Exodus. We just finished the Gospel of Mark, and here now we move into the record of Acts. Um, living as we do um, in the midst um, of a godless generation, um, you may be asking, um, how do we live peacefully and properly where godlessness is being ordained by the state? Faced as we are 
with the intolerance of tolerance. Where Christianity is not merely mocked, but is hostily opposed. That is true Christianity. Biblical Christianity. Gospel Christianity. That is the gospel of of Jesus Christ who is Lord. True Christianity. Acts answers that question for us. Hint, hint. The means and the method to live is a light in this dark world. The the means and the method to live in the midst of a godless generation, to live peacefully, perhaps, and properly, uh, the means and methods have not changed in 2,000 years. They have not changed. And we will see this unfold in these coming months. So this morning, if you would please bear with me, we're going to look at these first 11 verses. And I'm going to bounce around a bit because we're going to, we're going to see a larger picture and then we will um, get to the ascension of our Lord um, in the sermon this morning. And our main introductory point this morning is this. Um, The overall sense of what we'll see in Acts, the overall sense in what we will see in and through Acts is sovereign God acting. Sovereign God acting through the Acts of his apostles. And to this day, we witness Sovereign God acting through the lives of his people. And that includes you this morning, beloved. God constantly acts in the book of Acts according to his sovereign plan. God's sovereign plan is unfolding as he works through his apostles, as he works through those he has called to himself. Where the power of the Holy Spirit, beloved, is central to the continuing work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to note from the outset, as we read this historical account of the early church, we must be careful, okay, again, we must be careful not to read Acts in an entirely prescriptive way. In other words, there are some things described in the book of Acts that are not recorded for us to replicate. That is to say, uh, we don't read it and say, now let's do this as they did, and we will experience what they did. We are not to create, nor are we to frame particular doctrines from phenomenal events. 
Now, some things recorded in the book of Acts will be ongoing throughout the church age. For instance, chapter 2 and verse 42, we read of them, the, 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 the first century Christians, continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in the preaching and teaching of the word, the breaking of bread, and prayer. God brings life to his church through the preaching of his word. Now, certain things are repeated because that's the very nature of the church, the preaching of his, his word. We do to this day. We, we pray, we gather together, we partake of the Lord's table, and so on. We fellowship together in Christ. But many supernatural things that occurred in Acts are not to be duplicated or replicated. There are things that are unique to the book of Acts, unique to this time of redemptive history, some things that'll never happen again, such as Pentecost. A unique act of God in history. Unique to the human race. So just some guidelines for us. Before we begin, uh, many events recorded in a descriptive manner in the book of Acts are taken by um, some today who try and repeat those events, and it becomes nothing more than an embarrassing sideshow in the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. The foremost fundamental fact about Acts... It is not all the supernatural events that occurred. The foremost fundamental fact about the book of Acts is anchored in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The risen Lord, which, beloved, is an indisputable, essential doctrine of the Christian faith. That Jesus, who was a man, literally died, was buried, and literally was raised from the grave. That is a central feature in the book of Acts. And if you notice, that is the vindication of Christ. His resurrection is the vindication of the Lord Jesus Christ um, is what launches Luke's account. Jump down to verse 3. Notice, to them, his disciples, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days. This was Jesus showing himself to them as further proof of his resurrection. He revealed himself, we see um, in the gospel accounts. And here, um, for 40 days... He, he provided many decisive, convincing, persuasive proofs. Notice, not just a few, but many. Many. He appeared to his disciples. What did he say? Look, it's me. Look at me. Touch me. Feel me. Get, and, and, and by the way, give me something to eat. To prove what? That he was a human being who God had raised from the grave. You know, Easter's coming. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And many apostate churches who deny the literal resurrection of Jesus talk about Jesus being 
resurrected in our heart. He couldn't possibly be, you know, literally raised from the grave. If you deny that, you're not a Christian. Raised in our hearts. No. He raised you from the dead if you're a Christian. Because he himself was raised from the grave and he ascended and descended by way of his Holy Spirit to bring life to those who are spiritually dead. This is what we're going to see. And notice he, he, he provides many convincing proofs. Verse 3, giving many proofs. He's stacking the evidence for these 40 days prior to his ascension. Now, proof... The word proof comes from a word that was a favorite of, of Greek philosophers. And it, it was meant to demonstrate that the most convincing proof that can possibly be made of any particular argument. All the evidence, all the proof that that argument will bear packed into it. That is packed into the argument. That's what proof means by many proofs. So that's Luke's deliberate word of choice here. Luke is telling us that the Lord Jesus spent 40 days in large part convincing his disciples of that fact, the proof of his resurrection from the grave. That's key to the Christian faith. That's key to the book of Acts so that they would be utterly unchangeably convinced that Christ was back from the dead dead, and they went on to proclaim him, his life, death, and resurrection. Now, in chapter 2, we see that incorporated in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. As I said, we're going to jump around a bit. Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, Peter goes on and, and he quotes from Psalm 16, which was aimed at the resurrection of the, of the Messiah. Notice, for you will not abandon my soul, verse 27, to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption, prophesied a thousand years before. So the foundational truth upon which the book of Acts rests is the indisputable fact of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, friends, when we witness, and this is what we're going to be after in the book of Acts, we are witnesses as they were witnesses. And we have friends who, who don't believe. We want to begin with God who's holy. We who are sinful, we need a redeemer. There's only one. God sent his son. He is the Christ. That's not his last name. That's the royal anointed promised one. He came, he lived, and did what we could never do live a perfect holy life. He literally died as he, he bore God's wrath on the cross. Jesus gave his life up. No one takes my life from me, Jesus said. I got the power to lay it down. I have the power to raise it up again. And he did. 
raised from the grave, literally, this is the gospel we proclaim, beloved. The mission's the same. The facts don't change. He revealed himself. He showed himself by way of many proofs for these 40 days. And now, because Jesus has been raised, he has ascended, Luke, the author, he wants us to know this record is now, this record, this second record, okay, Luke is the first volume, Acts is the second volume of one book. Volume one, the Gospel of Luke. Volume two, the Acts of the Apostles. The author, Luke, written to some guy named Theophilus, some high-ranking official, which we'll look at in just a moment. You know, the interesting fact about Acts is that it begins with 120 believers in an upper room, scared to death, terrified, Do you remember how Mark ended, chapter 16, verse 8? They went out and fled from the tomb, the women who were at the tomb, and for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were greatly afraid. They're still afraid. But throughout the account of Acts, I want you to notice something. If you go to the very last chapter, the very last two verses in Acts 28. By this time, Paul is a believer. Paul is an apostle. Paul has traveled much. Paul has preached much. And by this time, he lived there in, in, in Rome two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. Notice verse 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. Boldness because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resident presence and power of God, the Holy Spirit, that these men at this point are to be waiting for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if we back up to verse 1, we see the initial coming of Christ. Notice in the record. Now, in the first book, O Theophilus, that's the Gospel of Luke. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So this Theophilus, the, the name means um, lover of God. Theos, God. Phileo means love, lover of God. It can also mean love by God. His title, most excellent. He was either a member of, of no, the nobility, some up, upper class um, statesman or official. Some believe he was a devout Christian in a high position. Others believe that, 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 that Luke writes these two accounts in, in trying to get Theophilus to, to make his decision firm with regard to Christ. It doesn't really matter because though it's penned to Theophilus by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is written to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, including us this morning. 
So there's Theophilus. He, he, he speaks about the initial coming of Christ. That is what Jesus did in a human body as recorded all through Acts, his miraculous birth. Twelve years old, he, he left the, the religious leader stunned in the temple. He, he healed the lame. He raised the dead. He died. He was raised. He writes in the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus, okay, catch this, began to do. Began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Volume one, Luke's gospel, primarily has to do with what Jesus did and taught, that is his public ministry, here in Acts, the second volume of the same book, it is not fundamentally different. It's the same work of Christ now being accomplished through fallen yet redeemed sinners, God's people. Notice the operative word in verse 1. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do. All that he began to do when he was here in a human body, this is the start, that was the start of what Jesus did, that was the start of what Jesus taught, implying this second volume, this second book, this second record, that the book of Acts is Jesus in what he is continuing to do and to teach. Two stages of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, his atonement was accomplished once and for all. We don't carry that on, amen? We just declare it. We preach it. We, if you like, share it. Amen? We share Christ. We declare Christ, the one who came and paid for our sins on the cross, rising again. That, that was an end, if you will, that was a beginning. The work he began to do, he now continues to do through the acts of the apostles and the acts of us 2,000 years later in this world that is opposed to God and his Christ. The message is the same. The power is the same. We're not the same. We're growing in grace day by day, amen? Being sanctified in the truth. So he says, I'm writing again, O Theophilus, about what Jesus is still doing. I'm writing to you about what Jesus is, is still teaching, albeit he's doing it through his apostles. He's doing it through his people. He has ascended into heaven, but he is spiritually present on earth. Amen? Amen? This is the promise he made back in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. And lo, I will, be, I will be with you always until the end of the age. I'll be with you always. He's here this morning, beloved. Do you sense his presence? He's here. He's continuing this work. His gospel, his good news. That's how you deal in a fallen world. That's how you live properly. That's how you live peacefully. You may face opposition by the world. We have the peace of God, which passes all understanding. 
a redeemed people, called out by God from the world. That's the church, the called out ones. We've been called out. Paul was called out, as we'll see in coming months. Behold, I am with you always. So Christ's leaving is Christ staying. We'll see Pentecost. We'll see the results of Pentecost. Jesus descended by way of his Holy Spirit, enabled and empowered these instruments of his good news. Now, I want you to notice something in chapter 2. It's God who pours out these blessings. It's God who pours out this power. Chapter 2 and verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. That's part of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. You know what you're witnessing, y'all? It's him pouring out his power. In verse 47, last part, verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Who adds? Who adds to the number? God. He pours out his spirit. It's his power. He calls his own to himself, and he adds to his church. When he appears to Paul, you know, in chapter in 9, um, he says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus and his people are one. Christ and the church, they are one. We see more of this power unleashed through the apostles. Also in chapter 9, if you look at verse 34, remember the man named Aeneas. He said, Peter that is, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Jesus Christ, now he's ascended. Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately, he rose. So did Jesus heal him or did Peter heal him? Yes. Yes. Peter spoke. The man was healed. The healer? Jesus, through Peter. It's beautiful. Beautiful work, he continues here. So Christ is working through his apostles using now fallen, sinful, ordinary human beings, not unlike us, amen, to do his work, to continue his work, to continue his teaching. We're part of this, beloved. So this I want us to see as we, as we work our way through Acts. Notice he appeared to them, verse 3, during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. What's that? The kingdom of God. What's the topic that he taught about throughout his earthly ministry, beloved? The kingdom of God. Over and over again, the kingdom of God. And now, having been raised from the tomb for those 40 days, he continues to teach them about the kingdom of God. But, as we'll see, it hasn't sunk in yet. He's so patient. Is he not patient? He's so patient. Notice verse 4, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Okay, now why does he say that? 
Answer, before we can do anything for God, we must receive from God. Now, of course, they're going to receive the Holy Spirit, but there is no serving God until we receive from God. And initially, unless one is born again, he'll never see the kingdom. It'll never make sense. There's nothing you can do for God unless you're born again. The Bible refers to that as regeneration. That's a gift of God. When we receive that, we have life in Christ. We, we, we bear the image of the risen Lord, raised from spiritual death, given life, and now we can proclaim life because we've been given life. They're waiting on the Holy Spirit to receive. You don't earn anything. You receive everything. Verse 4, he said, that which you heard from me. Remember, I said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, when we get there, we will see what that means and what it does not mean. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. A lot of crazy thoughts about that today, but we'll cover it then, okay? All right? So they cannot do God's work until God himself accompanies their work by the resident presence and power, the person of the Holy Spirit. He says, wait. That is the paraclete, the comforter, the advocate, the one who comes and represents Jesus and indwells us. His spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He is our assurance. He says, wait. And that spirit, friends, the Holy Spirit, is the same Holy Spirit who encouraged Jesus during his public ministry. You remember when he was baptized in the Jordan? There you have God the Father who speaks from heaven. Second person of the Godhead, Jesus being baptized. And he sees the third person of the Godhead descend like a dove upon Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. How many years was Israel in the wilderness? 40 years, the Son of God, the true Israel of God, is tested for 40 days. He comes out victorious. Victor. So they're called to wait for the Spirit. Now back in verse 3, over that 40-day period, again, he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. That was the focal point of Christ's teaching. He came out, remember it in Mark, preaching the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And he preached it his entire three and a half year, years with, with his apostles. So now having seen the validation of our Lord Jesus Christ by way of resurrection, his teaching for these 40 days about the kingdom. Notice next, um, confusion among the disciples. In verse 6, Lord, will you at this time? Will you at, at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, now, is that a good question or a bad question? Well, let me tell you this. It's a sign that they still don't get it. 
They still don't understand. When, when Jesus was out preaching and teaching and doing miracles and feeding the masses, this is the question he was getting all the time. Will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? Obviously, you're the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament prophets declared would come, the miracles you're doing. We see it. Ah, oh, you must be Messiah. Bring in the kingdom. He dies. They scratch their head. They pull on their beards. He can't be Messiah. Hmm. But wait. He's been raised again. He is Messiah. So they ask again, will you at this time? He had taught them repeatedly about the kingdom of? Kingdom of? God. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. All they kept talking about was the kingdom of? Israel. John Kelvin comments here. He says this. There are as many errors in this question as there are words. And then John Stott, he goes out to point out the errors. Okay, you ready? Listen to this. Quote, the verb, the noun, and the adverb of their sentence all betray doctrinal confusion about the kingdom. The verb restore shows that they were expecting a political and territorial kingdom, the noun, Israel, that they were expecting a national kingdom, and the adverbial clause at this time that they were expecting its immediate establishment. End of quote. They're still focused on their ethnicity, beloved. They're still fixated with their nationality as Jews. Their attention is still riveted on Jerusalem. They were wrong, beloved. They were wrong as to the sense of victory that Jesus had accomplished. That is, a victory over sin, death, and hell as the last Adam. They were wrong. They were wrong as to the constitution of the kingdom that Jesus was building. It was an international kingdom, beloved. Tribes, tongues, nations. The kingdom of God, as prophesied in the Old Testament. They were wrong as to the power of God that builds that kingdom. That is spirit-empowered preaching, Christ crucified, dead, buried, raised the third day. Go now, make disciples of all nations. Friends, Jesus is the temple torn down and raised up in three days. Okay? He is that temple. He is God's true Israelite. He is Mount Zion. He fulfills it all. He is. Now take it out from here, Jerusalem. Take it out to the ends of the earth. Now, what's most interesting and encouraging, especially to pastors, is that these disciples misunderstood the teaching of Jesus himself. That's very encouraging. You would think that Jesus' teaching and preaching would have been clearly understood by all. Wouldn't you assume that? Master teacher, perfect, flawless exegesis, 
perfect hermeneutics, never a mistake in his preaching, never an error in his teaching. Perfect, flawless, properly interpreting the text every time. And yet the apostles terribly misunderstood his teaching. They were slow to get it. This isn't about Israel, we'll see. This is about the kingdom worldwide. But Jesus went over the same principles over and over again. There's a great book on leadership written by Albert Moeller. Listen to what he says. Quote, the effective leader understands that the message has to be communicated again and again and again. If you listen to the most influential leaders, you will see that they repeat themselves over and over again. Those closest to you will hear you say the same things repeatedly. Your closest associates associates may be able to lip sync some of your lines and expressions. You cannot worry about that. I see you lip mine, but that's good. Your charge is to lead. And this means knowing that you will have to show up again and again with the same clear, consistent, and courageous message, end of quote. As demonstrated by our Lord Jesus himself. The kingdom of God. He said to them, verse 7, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but, this but is big, we'll see. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's a rebuke. It's not for you to know times or seasons. How many people predict Christ's coming over and over again? Now, this does not mean he is endorsing their anticipation of a geopolitical restoration of of national Israel. to to earthly prominence? Not at all. Not at all. Not then, not now. And I don't believe in some future millennium, but a consummated new Jerusalem descending out of heaven, new heaven and new earth, for certain, that's in view. Verse eight, notice he says, but, suggesting, but, suggesting, that Jesus is presenting an altogether different goal for them, his apostles. You will preach, you will declare, you will herald my truth in Jerusalem, Acts chapter one through seven. You will herald that truth in Judea and Samaria, chapters eight through 12. You will herald that truth to the end of the earth, Chapters 13 to 28. Yes, you will declare it to overtly religious Jews in Jerusalem. You will go on then to what you refer to as half-breed Samaritans, to Gentile dogs. You will witness of me to all of them. The kingdom of God. Isn't it beautiful? God's intent always. And that, beloved, presents an outline for the book of Acts. That truth right there. You see, friends, the locus of Israel 
is not occupying a strip of land in the Middle East. It never has been. It is the apostolic communion of God's people from throughout the nations. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom established when he came. Go preach it. Oh, you're a replacement theologian. Are we? No, people ask, well, does the church replace Israel? What's the answer? No, absolutely not. The church is Israel. The church is the true Israel of God. Israel fulfilled in Christ, where in Christ, he's the true Israelite. You're a true Israelite if you're in Jesus. Did you know that? Because you're in the true Israelite, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are his Israel. The New Testament's clear. Okay, this is how he refers to you. We are the children of Abraham, true Israelite. We are the true circumcision. We are the temple of the living God. We are a chosen people. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are God's special possession. We are his elect. We are his new Jerusalem. We are the bride of the Lamb of God. Where do you find that language? Well, in the New Testament, but where, is it, where does it originate? In the old with national ethnic Israel. He's come and conquered. Now it's about the kingdom of God worldwide. Beautiful. They still didn't get it, but they will get it, as we'll see throughout Acts. So we see his vindication. We see the work of his initial coming that, that he writes about in verses 1 and 2. Uh, we see the correction given to these disciples. And I want you to notice now the remarkable that is rather unremarkable. The remarkable that is rather unremarkable, and that is his ascension. Verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. When I say unremarkable, there, there's no pomp, there's no ceremony, there's no chariot of fire coming down to pick him up and whisk him away. Now, it, granted, it's pretty phenomenal that he rises up before their very eyes, but there's not a million angels there. There's not lightning, there's not fire. He's taken up in a cloud, and that is a cloud of glory. A cloud of glory takes him away. Okay, so... What Luke is describing, okay, follow me now. What, what Luke is describing in what they are perceiving from below, the question is, what is happening up above? This is what they see below. He, he, he rises up before their very eyes. He's taken away in, in a cloud of glory. He, he leaves them. He's enveloped by this cloud, but... What's occurring up above? Old Testament. Daniel tells us. Daniel 7. You can turn there if you like, or you can just listen. What Daniel described hundreds of years before this glorious event, he describes by way of a vision given to him. I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. 
Now, friends, some people think this is referring to Christ's glorious return. It is not. That is not referring to the second coming of Christ. This text is mishandled oftentimes because of people's eschatological scheme. Jesus uses this. If you turn back to Mark, remember we studied the Olivet Discourse? Jesus said this. In the days of that tribulation, verse 24, what was that tribulation? The tribulation spoken of that will come in 70 AD. That tribulation. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Again, that's apocalyptic language that we find in the Old Testament. When nations were destroyed, that was the language used. Stars will fall from heaven. That's the language used. The powers in heavens will be shaken. And, Jesus said this, they will see. That is, they will perceive. They will then begin to understand Daniel 7, the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and what? Authority. He's not coming from the clouds. He's going into the clouds to receive as the God-man, the last Adam, authority over what? All the nations of the world. Daniel continues, and he, the son of man, came to the ancient of days. Who's that, beloved? The father, God the father, and was presented before him. And what happens when he's presented before the ancient of days? What happens when the son is presented before the father? Okay, he ascends in a cloud. That's what they see from below. What's going on up above? Verse 14. And to him, Daniel 7, verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a what? Kingdom. All the nations of the world. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's Jesus, friends ascending to receive his reward from the Father as the victorious Son of Man, God incarnate, the last Adam who came to redeem everything that was lost in the first Adam. That's what's happening above in what these men witness, were these 500 witnesses all together, witness from below. It's the fulfillment of God, God the Father's words to God the Son in Psalm 2. Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations, what? Your inheritance, son, your inheritance. The ends of the earth, your possession, the kingdom of God in Christ who redeemed it all back through the cross, his death, Burial, resurrection, he's ascended, it's his. You know the Great Commission? People think that it begins with go therefore and make all disciples. It doesn't begin with go. What does it begin with? Behold, all power and authority has been given to me in heaven above and earth below. Go therefore and make disciples of what? Israel? National? No, the world, all nations. Beautiful. 
glorious. And, verse 10, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, who wouldn't? I'd be there like, <laughs> like, wow. 40 days, we've seen him come and go. We see that he eats. We see it's a literal body. He's ascended. Wow. And then behold, two men, right? How many witnesses does it take to validate? Two or three. Here's two. Two men stood by, these are angels, in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I would answer because I'm only human. <laughs> this Jesus who was taken up from you in heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So you have two witnesses there were two at the resurrection. There are two at the ascension. And they say, the way he left, he'll come again. But then, but then, every eye will see him. Every eye will see him then. On that day, it, it, as lightning lights up the sky from one end of the earth to the other, there will be angelic hosts then. There will be pomp then. There will be judgment then. The almighty monarch of the universe who has been given all power and dominion in a human body. Jesus represents you at the right hand of the Father in a human body, a glorified human body, and he rules now. It's his kingdom. He's the king. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Therefore, go and bear witness of me. So how, how do we deal in this culture, friends? That's opposed to Christ. We bear witness of Christ. The same Lord, the same King. You will, verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That goes for every one of us this morning, beloved. Wherever you are, whatever you do, friends, you are God's witnesses. You're indwelt with the same Holy Spirit. You are empowered by the same Holy Spirit. You're reminded of the same truth. This Holy Spirit. We're called to hold out the word of life, as Paul puts it to the Thessalonians. Hold out the word of life to a lost and dying world. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before men so that what? They will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We bear witness of this king in word and deed. You know, sometimes you'll hear it said, preach the gospel at all times, and when absolutely necessary, what? Use words. Friends, you can't preach the gospel without using words. The gospel is the gospel by way of words. We communicate the truth of the gospel, and we bear witness of our king by the way we live. So he provides them, he provides us a, a foretaste of the next great redemptive event in history, and that's the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ, friends. That's all that there is left to occur, his second coming. It has nothing to do with Israel, nothing to do, do with Jerusalem, but a new Jerusalem descending onto heaven. That's the next event, the second coming of our Lord. So to wrap up, friends, in that period between his ascension as we witness here, in his second coming, he's saying to them, 
Catch the vision, friends. Catch the vision. It's a world mission. Witness and make disciples of all of them. You have the gospel keys, he says. The gospel keys of the kingdom. The kingdom, the gospel, unlocks the blindness of those of the nations. So Acts is about the kingdom of God expanding to the extent that some Judaizers came to faith in Jesus. Pharisees came to faith in Jesus by way of this message. Acts is about the kingdom expanding. Those who had their hands on Jesus and crucified him, some of whom were converted. The gospel message. You know, the gospel will expand to places like Ephesus. Remember the temple of Diana? Remember when people were being converted? It put some people out of business. Remember who they were? The silversmiths who made their little tokens and idols. They were furious because people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ and they were destroying their, their idols and they were burning all their books on black magic. That's what the gospel does. That's what the Holy Spirit, that's, that's what God the Holy Spirit does. And we see this throughout Acts. Acts is about a resurrected, ascended Savior who continues to do the work that conforms people to his very image. And we sit here today as recipients. Amen? This is our message. This is our work. Acts is about the Great Commission being carried out by those who are spirit-filled and spirit-led. So, with the world looking bleak in our day, sometimes we think it looks bleak for the church. You ever think that? Be honest. You shouldn't. Well, what about the homosexual marriage agenda? Homosexual marriages, they're being accepted. What about all this gender confusion, L-G-T-B-Q-R-S-T? <laughs> what, what, what about all that? You know, what about the I feel like this, so I must be this? What about all that? Question, answer, what about it? Let me say this. Fox News, CNN, MNS, NBC, that's not the kingdom. That's not the kingdom. We are the kingdom. It's his kingdom. We're recipients of the king's grace. We're the light of the world. God's kingdom, friends, is continuing to expand in spite of all that. You think it's bad now? Go read the history of the first century. Come on. Perverted and twisted, inside out, upside down. It's just beginning to kind of circle back around. The message is the same because the king is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Lord, I thank you for the hope promised in Genesis 3. A promise that began to unfold as you revealed more of yourself to certain individuals, more of yourself to a particular nation, the nation of Israel, a people called out by you, through whom? 
would come a son, Isaac, who would have sons, one of whom would have 12 sons, become 12 tribes, who would become a nation, and, and funneled down through that nation would come your true Israelite, your son, our Lord, funneling back out worldwide to capture hearts of people called by your name, regenerated by your Holy Spirit, your sheep lost that you came to seek and find. Lord, we thank you for this salvation. Help us to be the light that we are, to proclaim the truth that we know, and to see a great harvest of souls from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The mission's the same. May we keep it in view as we study through Acts. In Jesus' name, amen.